Hello, I'm Jeff Johnston, host of the Living Undeterred podcast. And once again, we have an awesome guest lined up today with a very timely conversation, the opioid epidemic. Uh, I want to introduce Scott Silverman from San Diego, California. He's an author, a writer, scholar, um, you know, just really diving in head deep into this epidemic. So today our topic is going to be a lot on the opioid epidemic, but um, mostly talking about mental health, substance abuse, and addiction, where really my passion lives today. So Scott, welcome to the show. I'm super excited to, to tap your knowledge, your wealth of wisdom. Um, and again, thanks for taking the time to join us today. Well, Jeff, thank you. It's really nice to be here. And pretty much according to Molly, I had no choice. I had to be here. So I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, here, <laughs> I'm here to be a resource. And you know, this is something I when I go to bed at night, I'm thinking about. And when I wake up in the morning, I'm thinking about it. And anything that I can do to help reducer stigma and help families navigate getting their loved ones access to the highest, best level of care to, to avoid a catastrophic event, you know, similar to what I know you experienced. So uh, anything I can do to be uh, of help and service, you, you, I'm sure you'll, you, I'm sure you'll let me know. And, and congratulations on your big tour coming up and all the great things you've got going on. Yeah. I'm hoping that we can touch base. I know we're meeting with Jay down in San Diego and uh, you guys have a collaboration effort. And um, so I want to ask you to start off with with a softball question to get the conversation going. But what what is an addiction expert? Well, that's a great question. Uh, and from my perspective, I've been in long-term recovery a little over 37 years. And what that means is I haven't had a drink or a drug uh, for 37 years. Um, I crashed and burned, um, my words, in 1984. Uh, I had an attempt at suicide. And I've been involved with service work from the very first moment I got out of rehab. So I've been engaged with it. Uh, what also I think elevates me, if you will, is I'm also a treatment provider. Uh, I'm a crisis coach. I'm an interventionist. And I've written two books. One's called Tell Me No, I Dare You. And I did that in 2008 about my story. I ran a nonprofit for 18 years working with people coming out of jail and prison. Most had some form of addiction issue. So an addiction mm -hmm. specialist or expert from my perspective is I'm not a clinician. You know, I don't treat people. Uh, I create environments for people to get treatment and I help them families navigate. So as an interventionist and a crisis coach, that's kind of where I am in the middle. And I help connect people to the highest and best level of care, meaning I don't do a diagnosis. But what I do is I try to help right. stop the madness and get the attention of the family. We sit down and we figure out, you know, who needs to shut up, who needs to speak up, and who needs to really take a, a position on what happens next in that person's life. So between treatment, recovery, experience, anecdotal, and the, the decades I've had of working with others who have suffered from mental health issues and barriers to whether it be employment or relationship issues, I've gotten pretty good at what I do. And, you know, I'm pretty well sought after, and I'm also anxious to stop going to funerals. Yeah, I, I can certainly echo that sentiment. Um, so I guess my frustration stems from why, why is every single statistic in the mental health space that I can find, and there's probably some odd one, but it seems like every statistic is worse than it was a year ago, five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Yet, yet we seem to be so hyper aware of these issues. And I, I speak often about changing behavior, how, how we can, mm -hmm. you know, scare people to change behavior, threaten incarceration or, you know, uh, take their kids away or whatever. And then we can inspire people, find ways to, to motivate them to look at, you know, the better road, not the bitter road. 
but I keep going back to this awareness thing. I I'm struggling heavily with whether awareness is even working and if we need more awareness and before you answer, let me give you a quick, uh, kind of a story of why I struggle with this. You know, look at the United States as a country, uh, everything we eat or drink, we put in our mouth has a label on it. And when I was a kid, we didn't have labels. I drank Mountain Dew because it tasted good. I didn't know it had 10 cups of sugar in it. But today we know everything. I mean, there, we can't really put more labels on to inform people how unhealthy 90% of the food is that they eat. Yet, we're the heaviest industrial country in the world. We're 65% clinically obese in the United States. But we seem to know more about this than we've ever known before. So using that as a template about the you know illusion of awareness, I'm struggling with is my job to raise awareness because I don't really think that it's working. I think I want to find people like you and people that are making headways in actionable steps to make people's lives better, not awareness. And so am I just looking at this from the wrong lens or do you think I'm onto something or are you frustrated with awareness as well? Well, the difference probably between you and I is I I'm only frustrated during waking hours. So, so yes, I am very, I am very frustrated. I think, you know, as, as, as a person who does what I do, my phone should be ringing off the hook and I want to drink from a fire hose. And as an SME subject matter expert, you know, I'm in San Diego. So, you know, what that means to me is 3.3 million people. We're a border town with the Southern piece of California. There's 40 million people in our community. And, you know, here's the thing that's interesting. I think Jeff, and I'm going to try to answer this in a way that, um, may not get us to an easy answer because I don't think there is one. For example, I was a right. homeless provider for 18 years. And this is back in, you know, started the nonprofit in 93, worked with people returning from jail and prison. And, you know, I developed this program that reduced recidivism when we had it studied. And we took it to the legislative leaders. You know, we took it to the supposedly to the change agents. And I got poo-pooed. I mean, when I actually started my nonprofit, and I think this is still part of the, the stigma, you know, when it comes to how are we going to create change, I went to all the nonprofit providers I could in San Diego. So look, I'd like to partner with you. And what I want to do with the hardest to serve, those with non-traditional working past, homeless, chronically unemployed, you know, street people, homeless, whatever you want to call them. And I want to help them get jobs. Mm-hmm. You can do the housing, you can do the mental health, you can do the treatment side. And you know what they told me? They said, you know, Scott, it took me six months to get a meeting with this group. And this is in my book. It's documented, my first book. They said to me, I, I, look, we, we're going to entertain your presentation. You're very enthusiastic. We appreciate your passion. Can you come back in a month? And I'm like, no, mm-hmm. I'm going to sit outside. Right. I'm wait for you guys to talk about it. And then I'll come back in and let me know what you want to do. You know, another month, we're going to have that right. many more issues on our streets. And then you're, and I said, based on everything right. I've seen in the office today that I've waited three hours of the meeting, you all are not that busy. So I go back in and they say, you know, mm-hmm. look, we thought about it. We talked about it. Bottom line is this. If you're successful at what you do and you truly can reduce recidivism and you get our clients jobs, we've all discussed it. We agree. What are we going to do? And I'm like, mm-hmm. wait, what? Well, what, what are we going to do if our, we don't have clients? I said, are you seriously saying out loud at group level, you don't really want to see people exit the social service system? You'd rather keep them in? And the answer was unanimously yes. 
So I had the worst mm-hmm. case of the efforts that night I'd ever had. And the next day is when I went to the library and how to start a nonprofit uh, because I was just so upset. And keep in mind, this is back in 1991. And San Diego's homeless oh, wow. population, yeah. it's just doubled in the last two years. So to your question, yeah. I think that people think that our municipalities are taking care of this, whatever this might be, mental health issues, recidivism, homelessness, chronically unemployed, welfare, uh, drug addiction, uh, mental health issues. And I think they think that they are doing it because they put out studies and they have reports and they're, they're doing what I call shut up minimums. You know, here's the information, Mm -hmm. shut up. And if there's, if there's information Mm -hmm. you don't have, we can certainly go back to the state and see if they'll fund another study. So to me, it's BS Mm -hmm. to me, it's the people who can really create. And I think a lot of it has to do with the political arena. You know, we've got people coming in and out of office and look, if you're watching today and I'm sure you are, Jeff, What's going on with leadership is just horrible. I mean, the fact that we're not even mm-hmm. talking about the opioid crisis, other than criminal justice uh, intervening or a horrific death, you know, the recently a one-year-old overdosed right. with fentanyl. So that makes the news cycle for a day and a half. But, you know, people not making a taking a position politically is on the news cycle every single day. And, and we're just, it's not, it's not important enough yet to people who seem to be the ones who control, um, if nothing else, or influence the media. You know, is every state doing something? I'm sure they are. Here's an example. I wrote a book, took me three years, called The Opioid Epidemic. Can you be any more topical? I sent a copy of my <laughs> that book. That was in 2021, right? Correct. And I worked on it, you know, three years prior and actually to be candid, and I still have it on the back burner. The the title of the book was You're Not God, That Job Is Taken. That's what I started with. And then when I got a a writer, co-writer, a ghostwriter to help me, they go, you know, this situation, they were doing research for a year saying, you need to change the title. So I did with influence and, and enthusiasm from them. So I write the book and I send one with a nice letter to every governor in the country. I got five thank you notes and I got a book returned from the governor. I think it was Philadelphia. And they thanked me, but said, we can't accept gifts. And I don't Mm. think there's a governor that hasn't had this issue in their community. So, you know, I'm frustrated. Of course, I'm older than you and and I'm entitled because I'm on Medicare now. And I just think that Mm -hmm. I, I, you know, I, I can't, I can't go to rotary clubs on a weekly basis and try to create systemic change, you know, eight to 10 people at a time. And I know that, you know, right. part of my, my own angst and my own earnestness is I want to try to get the message out. So when I heard about your organization, you know, we, they were giving us all the details of what we need to do. And I said, let me, let me talk to the boss. My dad told me once, he said, you want something done, go talk to the person in charge. So that's why I wanted to talk with you. And I didn't even know we were going to be doing this until I kind of read the fine print. I was just signing up to have a meeting with Jeff Johnson. So, you know, I, I don't know how we can help, but I, I, you know, I see you as a kindred spirit and a brother from another mother. And, you know, mm-hmm. I, I don't, I don't think there's enough of us that are connecting, but I know there's a lot of families who have suffered who, you know, they kind of go out and start their own nonprofit and they, they get into, you know, 
spending a lot of time doing grant writing and, and you know, fundraising and it's time consuming. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, yeah, then yeah. you hire staff, then you've got to make payroll. And I've been through all that. So I think there's, yeah. I think there's some effective ways, but, you know, and I talk to congressmen locally, I work with criminal justice. I'm on the honorary deputy sheriff's here in San Diego. I'm on the prescription drug task force. I'm on the methamphetamine drug task force. I spend probably 25 hours a week volunteering my time to be represented at meetings where the process never seems to end. I mean, I'm on the DA's opioid task force. I'm a subject matter expert for a local television station. And none of that pays me anything. But I don't mind because when I'm out there, the phone will ring. and But I'm one guy, yeah. you know, just like you're one right. guy. So Right. Uh, I don't know if that answers your questions or not, but I went a little. It, it does, and I I was actually asked this question by somebody because uh, I always try to get people try to pin me down to like, you know, some definitive answer or position. And so the question is, you know, Jeff, not only why you're doing the tour, but what's the problem you're trying to solve? You know, what, what's the problem you're trying to solve? And I got to thinking how I used to answer that question, and finally I realized, you know what? Here's how I'm going to answer the question. If what we were doing was working, we wouldn't be doing the tour. Yeah. If what we were doing was working, we, and I don't know how simple and clear and articulate that can be. And you don't have to be a clinician. You don't have to be the father of a lost child or, or, or lose your wife to alcoholism. You don't have to have all these things happen. But if you just asked the answer, the question kind of back with a statement, if what we were doing was working, we wouldn't be doing the tour. It's, it's, it's no more simple than that. And so if you look at the numbers, you know, you want to get under the hood, as I like to say, 800 is probably higher now. 800 Americans die a day from opioid overdose, suicide, and alcoholism. 800 a day. And you take, you know, one family, you know, I'm just, I'm one house on one street in one city, in one state, in one country. And my son dies of fentanyl poisoning at 23. My wife soon followed, you know, four and a half years later from alcohol abuse from the grief of losing a child. And so I lost, you know, in a set of five years from 50 to 56, which should be really the time I'm counting my chips and buying a retirement property and kind of getting ready to go into that, that comfortable part of my life. I just got completely uprooted. And, um, I, I soon realized that I really had really one road to go down and that was what I call the better road. That's kind of what we talk about in our presentations. And so going back to 800 a day, and you think about what the effect one or two deaths had in my family. And, you know, Seth had a child three weeks after he died. You know, his daughter was born. So now I have a granddaughter doesn't have a dad or a grandmother and she's five. And my boys don't have an older brother and a mom and they're 20 and 18. So, you know, what can I do to not only try to be the best dad I can be and best grandpa I can be, but also make a difference, make a change. And I, I just, I get very frustrated with this raising awareness campaign. It seems like everybody's on. I just, I'm like, you know, maybe, maybe I'm looking at this wrong, Scott. Maybe I need to start trying to find the movers and the shakers that are actually doing something. And that's where our paths crossed. You were named what the San Diego man of the year or something in 2019 you know, and they don't give that to people that aren't doing things. You know, they don't give that to just authors and people that have blogs. And well, it, was, it wasn't um, actually man of the year. I was, it was just Scott Silverman day. I got a day. <laughs> One day. You're man of the year for me. <laughs> well, I, I I'll make you man of the year in Iowa. How's that? 
you know, you're, you're man of the year in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Cute stories. That um, was that was in the city, and and one day the county was doing animal of the week, and people were getting frustrated because they, you know, a lot of, everyone loves animals, and they said, you know, you really you really need to start honoring people because the city's been doing it. Uh, so they, I got yeah. honored. It was the first week where they were doing a human of the week. And I remember I was called in and I, I got the award at the County Board of Supervisors, went in, accepted my little citation. And then I, I got all kinds of flack from people going, well, where's all the animals? You know, we wanted the animals back. Yeah. Like, oh my God. So I want to see the you know, Doberman it, of the week, not this Scott guy. Yeah. And I try to leverage those accolades so I can open doors and kick down doors. Yeah. And, you know, I, I got to tell you, you, you will not, I'm pretty confident you will not find anybody as um, I'm going to use the word aggressive, but passionate. I mean, I do my own happy hour podcast, which I will have you on soon. Uh, maybe we'll do it while you're That'd on the great. road, but I, I record them and it takes a couple of weeks for my producer since he's a volunteer. Yeah. But I do all of that because I really, I care. And I just, I don't see our, leaders doing it. And, and, you know, when you see high profile people who experience a loss, you'd think they would work a little harder um, to help because yeah. they've got a platform, you know, and it's, it's, right. the, you know, what's her name, Devada, when she talked about being California sober. So what I do is I pick up on those buzz lines and I try to find ways to leverage that, but it's, it's not something people want to hear. It's because it's scary. And, you know, one in five families are impacted by some form of addiction. Right. And 15% of the population has an addiction issue that will arise. And look, I'm in an industry that does $40 billion of billable time to insurance companies. And we have a 95% failure rate. I know. 90, it's just 95%. astounding. It's astounding. And that's documented. And, and it's been like that for decades. So when you ask the question, you know, are, are the people, you know, Marshall Goldsmith, you know, motivational speaker guy is out here. He, he wrote a book called What Got You What Got You Here Won't Get You There. So to my point is, right. I'm not going to accept, you know, whatever the current standard is. You know, I I slam the mayor publicly whenever I can cuz in our city, you know, population of homeless doubled. How that happened? How in the heck did that happen? Right. And by the way, California has 50% of the homeless in the whole country right here. And half of those are in San Francisco, Los Angeles, and yeah. San Diego. Yeah. So if if that kind of situation can be completely out of control, I mean, Los Angeles, Skid Row has 50,000 homeless. San Francisco is pretty much run wow, by that's just, God forbid somebody that's ever just, gets a hold of the homeless and unionize them, they'll shut down metropolitan centers. So my point is, whoever's in charge, I don't trust them, first of all, because I don't think they have the skill sets. I don't think they have the time. I don't think they understand the problem. And they keep throwing money at the same people doing the same thing, getting the same result, which, as you know, is one of the purest definitions of insanity. Yeah, there's a great quote I used to say when I, I was a well, I still am. I haven't sold my investment company, but for my whole life, since I was 23, I've built up a, a wealth management firm here in Cedar Rapids. That's what I was doing before all this happened. But there's this saying we used to say, if you always do what you always done, you'll always get what you always got. And that's a saying I had above my desk, you know, so it's like, you know, so I look at this mental health initiative that we're on right now and, and people say, you know, Jeff, man, you, you've got a fire lit under you and, and, and you've really taken tragedy. And, and, and I kind of think to myself, okay, but what other option do I have? I do, so my option, you're saying that there is actually an option for me to get drunk every day, start doing drugs, start lying and being deceitful 
you know, and, and start, you know, I said, that's not a road that anyone wants to be on. That's called the bitter road. And I really need to stay off that. So I have just developed most of it just personally ways to kind of trick my brain and not play these narratives that are presented. Like even, even the word sober, Scott, I don't call myself sober. Um, because to me, I'm just not, I'm not drinking at 1124 AM on Tuesday, April 26th. And I don't complicate my mind any more than that. Now, I, I may drink tomorrow. I may die tonight to even not even make it to tomorrow. So I've really just learned for me to really break down these things as I like to say, you know, small steps. And, and I think I've got this passion now where I want to kind of upset the apple cart, the mental health space. And I want to do it by changing the narrative, by changing your mindset type of type of thought process. And then I go back to, and anyone that follows me knows that I talk about stoicism a lot. And I talk about, um, a lot of ways that, that we can reframe things given to us. So I, I have a sentence that at the end of my presentations, I, I ask the audience to just think about, and it's a sentence I think that can change people's lives. It's actually a question. Do things happen to you or do things happen for you? And how you answer that really determines the rest of your life. And so if you are an alcoholic or a drug addict or you're, you know, some, something tr bad's happened to you, are you a victim or are you a victor? Or do you sit around and you say, you know, woe is me. I, I, I can't stop doing this, blah, 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 blah. The politicians aren't getting involved. It's the Mexican drug cartels. It's, or are you like, okay, this happened for me. My son died for me, not for a reason. I don't know what the reason is. I'm going to go invent one if there isn't one, but it happened for me. And I think if we can get people before they become the substance abusers and the, the suicide, um, before the suicidal ideation and get them to re kind of rewire the way that they look at life. I think we have a chance. And again, that's, that's not raising awareness. I actually, that's not, um, I'm probably not going to be similar to a lot of people that you hear speak before because I'm almost, I'm almost exhausted of raising awareness. I, I, I mean, my son and my wife, they knew that what they were doing could take their life. Yet they, they, yet they, they couldn't stop. And so, you know, what, it, what is that pivot in the mind that can get people to stop? And I don't know. I'm not, I'm like you, I'm not a clinician. I'm just a dad from Iowa. No, I, I'm, not a, I'm not a clinician. I said that earlier. I, down. I'm not a clinician. I'm, I'm not either. You know, I'm just somebody who has experienced it and seen a lot of it. And, you know, my, one of my new acronyms right now is PI because everybody likes PI, you know, prevent, yeah. inform, <laughs> and educate. To your point, because I think I, 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 well, I dealt with a family just recently who who lost a son, and his younger brother a year later is now on the same path his brother was. So the heightened awareness, sure. family, you know, cogn cognitivity, um, and yeah, it's right. it's like they're watching it happen again, <clears throat> and they were referred to me, yeah, and I tried to you know get their son to he was seventeen. You know, he's, he's, you know, invincible and, you know, it won't happen to him. Yeah, sure. but, you know, this, the accidental overdose right. right now with fentanyl is just so scary. Uh, and you're right. People can't, you know, and then you look at, you, you know, you look at oh God, what's his name that's on um, going through, uh, geez, the star with his, uh, his ex in the big divorce all over TV right now. What's his name? I can't, I can't believe I spaced. He, well, he, Pirates I'll of the think of it when you tell him. Oh, uh, Johnny Depp. Yeah, listening to Depp when someone said, well, you know, 
why would you be drinking that early in the morning? He goes, well, I, you know, it's happy hour. Right. And, and just watching him articulate that. And I think that they become kind of the, you know, and, and Dubato, these, these are <clears throat> major influencers that people want to follow. And then, you know, you look at sports stars. So when you, mm-hmm. when you talk about the term raising awareness, to me, that's usually, that's usually someone in the municipality who believes that the information they haven't quite gotten yet to assemble will help create change. And to me, it's BS because mm-hmm. we know. I agree. We absolutely freaking know right now what the data looks like. And, and, you know, and when I heard somebody say recently, we need to go study affordable housing and what the long-term impact is going to be of a housing first model. And, you know, everybody who's doing the housing first model never talks about accessing treatment for the person that's going to be housed. And 80% of the people on the street mm-hmm. have a substance use disorder or a mental health disorder mm-hmm. that's going undiagnosed and more importantly, untreated. So to your point, how do we get this mm-hmm. information to people where it's as exciting as going through Krispy Kreme's drive through and getting a warm donut? You know? <laughs> and I don't know if we'll ever make it that attractive, right. but to me, you know, shoot for the moon, you're bound to hit an eagle. So I, I think it's real important because it's really, and I deal with a lot of interventions and kids and, you know, talking to a 16, 17, 18, 19 year old, you know, they don't think they have a problem and they believe that whatever happened out there to their friend is not going to happen to them. And that to me is an unformed. And people get criticized. They go, Scott, you know, I just, my kid just wants to party. I said, well, if that's the position you're taking, then educate them to know that if they take a pill that looks like Xanax at a party or they pick up a vape pipe that someone said, yeah. this is laced with some fentanyl, give it a try. You know, it's a real small amount. Why would you do that? It's like driving in the rain yeah. 60 miles an hour with your lights off on your car. Who would do that? Yeah. So, you know, raising awareness. You know, but and by the way, you're getting idea. ready to go on a raising awareness campaign, uh, you know, and that's how people will perceive it until you articulate your message yeah. to let them know what the, you know, what, why you want to create systemic change. Cause you know, getting on the road, that's a lot of work and, you know, I'm sure it'll be some fun, Yeah. but on the other hand, and you know, you'll be, yeah. you'll be probably not sleeping much and speaking wherever you can. And I hope you get and glean all the exposure you possibly can. Cause you know, even if, even if your perspective might be different, the fact that you're out there with a megaphone talking about it, cause to, to and I do another uh, podcast on Mondays called reduce the stigma. And what we talk about is trying to get the conversations going. And that's the way we do it. It's just talk about it. And, and you know, well, I don't want to create a word. We're trying to do it living under. I was, I was saying, I don't want to create a word. I want to create systemic change. I think people are way too aware. If one in five families have an addiction issue and 15% of the country has it and only 10% will seek help. And here's an interesting factoid. Of the 15% who have an active addiction issue that will, you know, you know, implode or explode in the next 12 months, they will, as impaired people, untreated, they will impact seven others each day, each negatively. So that's 85% of our population. So we should be talking about this just like we do nutrition and having a good breakfast. And, you know, you watch, if you watch anything on YouTube, yeah, you're, you know, so... I'm sure I'm preaching to the choir, but how do we you're, do that? You're spot on because I talk about in my speech about the three foundations of the pillars of the living undeterred mindset, ex- expectations, preparation, and evolution. 
and in preparation, I talk about toxicity and people initially think, well, toxic relationships. Well, I'm talking about toxic TV, toxic food, toxic books, toxic relationships. Sure. But my, my, my metaphor I use for my audience is imagine you're treading water and you have uh, a toxic item hanging on your ankle. Let's say you like pizza or donuts, or you don't want to work out, or you watch Fox news all day, or, you know, you, or you, um, have a friend that's, that's negative all the time, you know, and you cut that cord off your ankle. The first thing you're going to do is you're going to pop up to the surface, right? Well, there's no guarantee that anyone's going to be there, but you're going to be able to swim to shore possibly and help yourself again. But by chance, maybe somebody's there to pull you out. So in my mind, I like to tell people every one negative toxic thing that you cut, you add five positive things to your life. Now, I have no evidence for that. I've just made that up. But it should help people understand the importance of preparing themselves for life's journey. And you can't do it drunk. You can't do it high. You can't do it unhealthy. You can't do it poor sleeping. You can't do it on prescription pills. So, you know, it's like, it's like, I, I like to tell people, I can't tell you how to grieve successfully. I can't tell you how to fight your issues successfully, but I certainly can tell you how not to do this, how not to do it. Right. And that's drunk, high, lying, sleeping in, eating unhealthy. Those are clear cut ways that are going to hold you down underwater. And if you can cut some of these, you know, at a time, you can't give up everything at once. But if you can slowly start cutting things like I have done, I quit drinking in 2017. I lost 40 pounds. I work out every day. I meditate every day. I'm not a superstar, man. I'm, 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 I'm no more an important human being than anybody else. That homeless person in San Diego is just as important as me. So how do you and I, Scott, find people to kind of look inside and make these adjustments? And that's the mission that we're on with the tour. And I'm sure that's what you try to figure out every day you talk to advocates and people that are in the trenches like you and I are. Um, it's, it's a constant exploration, you know, less, less than explaining opinions to people. You and I are out exploring, wouldn't you agree? Yeah. And I think what's interesting is, you know, I belong to anonymous programs, a few of them actually. And, you know, one of the big things is it's all about um, attraction, not promotion. The problem with that is it takes a little while to get that information out and people are, are expiring too quickly right now. So what I try to do is, mm -hmm. you know, just be present and, and I've become a pretty good listener. But on the other hand, if, mm -hmm. if somebody, you know, if somebody's on fire, I'm not bringing a squirt gun. I'm going to turn on a big hose, you <laughs> yeah. know, or wrap them in blankets. Yeah. And I just find that, yeah. you know, the process people just tend to process they, their solution for them because that's kind of how they, you know, earn their way to uh, be, be, have a seat at the table. And some of them, I mean, I go to these meetings, 70 people mm -hmm. in the room, 65 of them are all paid to be there. I'm one of the five that isn't being paid to be there. And they're just like, you know, listen, watching mm -hmm. the power. I got a big presentation coming up in May and I did, they just got picked up, NIDA, and um, it got picked up on a national basis and they want my PowerPoint. I go, look, I, I don't want to, I don't want to have a PowerPoint. I don't do PowerPoints. I want to talk directly to the audience. I'm going to take any question you want to put in front of me. And I was chosen to do this because finally, locally, they said, you know, Scott, you're a nationally recognized expert. I don't know why we're not taking advantage of you. I'm like, what? Really? Yeah. Hello? My God. So, you know, 
I can't kick any more doors in. My foot hurts. I've got arthritis. I'm older now. And I don't want to keep doing that because what happens is you don't get received well. So I'm going to go back to one of your points that when you're talking to people, one of the things I've learned, you know, Jeff, is most of us want to know what's in it for me. So if if, mm-hmm. if I can provide what's in it for you, and then when when you're talking to somebody and you're saying to them, what's in it for you is you're, you know, you're 26 years old, you could live a long life. And when someone reacts mm-hmm. to you in a way, it says, you know, I'm not really worried about tomorrow. I want to, I want to party mm-hmm. today. It's hard mm-hmm. to get through to them because mm-hmm. if the idea of life is not an incentive, it's really hard. Now the parents different. I mean, they want to have their child around, yeah. you know, and they're watching them, you know, slowly kill themselves. And I, I get the question, right. you know, can you fix this? And I'm like, well, no, I can't fix it. If I could fix it, you know, right. it, it, I would have given you a pill or there'd be a, you know, right. some sort of wristband you could wear. And, you know, and there's, and there's no vaccine for addiction. And we're, in yeah. my opinion, right. I don't think we're further along now than we were in 1935 when Bill and Bob started Alcoholics Anonymous to say that we know how to really treat substance use disorders with outcomes. I think we're worse. Why? Well, because we're we have more people with less skills treating more people. Correct. But there is right. and there is no model right. according to science. There is no the model. information's better. Yeah, I mean, I, a buddy of mine traveled the world. Yeah, the information's better. The well, the information's better. But think about it. If if the percentage of the population is increasing with those who suffer from it, and then you factor in mental untreated mental health issues, untreated trauma, right? And and look today. And today, you know, in April, was it 26? If you want to go see a psychiatrist, you've got a, a, up to a 60-day wait time. And people in that industry, they're not even working. It. That's got to change. Well, That's you know, change. And, and who's going to create yeah. the incentive? Because mental health issues are very opaque and they take time. And in my opinion, you yeah. really it's hard to help somebody one hour a week, you know? California is now trying now. They want to, they want to do doc- a mandatory hold. The governor's trying. And ACLU stepped in the other day and said, nope, not going to happen. You're not going to lock people down. Well, what if they're out there? They've been arrested 47 times. They've been to the ER 60 times. Do you don't think they'd be a good candidate for a longer term, kind of a restricted environment to help them get mm-hmm. the support they need? Can't make someone do something they don't want to do. That's California. So... I, I would I would probably assume yeah. I'd probably be That's famous wonderful. if I left California and did my work in any other state, but I love it here. I grew up here and in I, Iowa, yeah. Iowa, yeah. Well, I got a buddy in Iowa. Um, so, did, so so do- good. So Dr. Gabor Mate, I think I pronounced that right, claims that most addiction issues are childhood trauma based. And then you have Johan Hari, who's another addiction expert, claims that the opposite of addiction is connection, you know, connectivity. So you have two, you know, two renowned experts that really have two different lenses. They're viewing this from Dr. Mate says almost all of our issues are based in our childhood, uh, unresolved issues, you know, uh, repressed, uh, abuse, things like that. Um, which is a pretty fatalistic nihilistic way to, to look at our youth, I guess. Um, and then you have, you know, um, Johan Hari who says, well, the opposite of addiction isn't sobriety. It's not being clean. It's vulnerability, it's connection, it's talking to other humans. So again, you got two really separate foundations that these, these two have built pretty successful careers on. So it, it lends me to your question you know, or a question to you, you know, where do you think addiction stems from? Is it more disease or is it more choice? 
and and where does uh, telling your story and being vulnerable come into helping those that are struggling? Well, the last part first. I think when people hear somebody else share their their truth uh, and they it resonates with them, they have a level of connectivity, the connection piece. I look at the the addiction yeah. as an allergy, and I also compare it almost all the time with diabetes. It's a disease. And you don't get a choice. And is it treatable? Yes, just like diabetes is treatable. But you know, we don't we don't hold people hostage who have diabetes. You know, they don't say, "Well, gee, wait, come back when you're really desperate." And and the disease of addiction is one of the few, if not the only one, where people push back. They think it's a moral failing. There's it's stigmatized all the time. Right. And, and even insurance companies want you know they want they want proof that this individual. And how do you fix somebody? who's had a problem for, you know, eight, 10, 15 years with eight weeks of outpatient program and, and then cut, you know, because a lot of treatments right. benefits driven, you know, and I know both of those theories that those gentlemen talk about. And at the end of the day, most, most trauma that most people suffer, uh, you know, people say it comes from childhood, but I got to tell you, we have a huge uh, commitment to working with veterans and, most of their PTSD happened while they were, um, you know, overseas or fighting or involved. So oh, we're right. seeing that now. And it's amazing because um, I think the VA has a ton of data around the vets. But the treatment side is what, look, I work with a lot of doctors, a lot of professionals. And they all talk about the problem. They talk about addiction. They talk about excess to prescription medication. I mean, I run a, another nonprofit called Safe Homes Coalition. We educate the community yeah, on that. how to remove yeah. unsafe and unused medication. And, you know, I, I, the county just took my money back, 27 grand. Well, you know, it's, the year is up. I said, it's one of the biggest problems we have in our community. Overdoses are up 600% in San Diego. I said, I can't give you any more data than, than showing you what we did this last year. Yeah. And they said, well, you know, you, you have to turn it back in or we're going to come get it. So I, I wrote him a check and gave it to him. It's like, I can't believe it. But because politically, the person who gave it to us is no longer in position. Someone else is, it's their district, and they don't want to approve it until it goes through a competitive round. It's like, are you kidding? What I do with that money is take the crisis call that the county can't. Anyway, my point is, societally, you know, we're spending a ton of money. In San Diego, drug medical. I mean, but I, I, I know the treatment centers everyone's going to because I, I get that insight. So I have that insight that a lot of people don't have. So, I, I believe it's a disease of addiction. And you know, the people say, well, you, you just need more willpower. And there's an old guy at my meeting. He shared, you'll love this. You know, I hope you'll love it. Anyway, he says, if if you think willpower <laughs> works, next time you have diarrhea, try to control it. <laughs> you know? And, and mm-hmm. you can't. That's a good one. You can't. So you know. yeah, but I I do want to go back to a conversation I had on a podcast about six months ago with a gentleman, and we were talking about this disease choice thing because I write about it in my book, and I I don't I kind of take a little bit of a position, but I I think it's nature and nurture, disease and choice. I think it's a combination of both. I don't think it's one or the other. But so he was. We were talking about roughly 85% of, you know, people's health problems as they, you know, at any stage is directly related to what they put in their mouth, basically, you know, the, the food intake they they take. 
and diabetes came up because, you know, some diabetes is hereditary. Some of it's the food you eat. And so that person was saying, well, you know, diabetes, for example, uh, there are a percentage of people that would have never had diabetes had they had a healthier diet. And I don't, and again, as a doctor, I, I don't know that, I don't know if that's a true statement, but based on the people I talk with that are doctors, that is a true statement. But the issue with that is, is if you say that you, it's like, it's like talking about the obesity problem in the country. Now you're fat shaming. Now it's like, you're, you're hurting the feelings of fat people. And it's like, you know, a diabetic could very easily have been a diabetic because of the choices they made in the food they're eating. And last time I checked, pizza wasn't addictive. Um, maybe it is, maybe it isn't, I don't know. But so I think, I think there's more to kind of peel back these layers and try to really understand that at the end of the day, this probably is a heavy combination of both. And you probably have some individuals that are, you know, pre predispositions different than predetermination. So I'm, I'm really puzzled when I have these conversations in, in, in how we can get to some consensus that, you know, I know that the disease model advocates are very, very aggressive on, on that. And then there's people that like the freedom model that's out there. They're all, they're all choice oriented. And I, I vacillate between back and forth because I could see legitimate arguments on both sides, but really personally, Scott, I can only go off the evidence of my life experiences. And that's really all the real evidence we actually have. And my, my evidence was as an alcoholic since eighth grade that I quit cold Turkey on December 24th, 2017. And it's been the easiest thing I've ever done in my life. And I'm not kidding you. When you bury a child, uh, if you can't, if you can't find something from that, then you'll end up unfortunately doing what my wife did and, and drank herself to death. And I think there's something in there, in that story of mine, where there is hope and inspiration that you can have the absolute worst things happen. And I don't have to be accepting the narrative um, of, of what somebody tells me. I, I'm an alcoholic and I'm always an alcoholic. You know what? I personally don't believe that. Now it helps me get through my urge to drink, but I think there's probably more people that can look at it that way. It's no different than when my son was diagnosed in fifth grade as attention deficit, which is another whole thing I could go on for an hour. I have full blown attention deficit, full blown. And my staff and people who work with me says I'm like a 10 out of 10, but I think I'm like a five. But my dad told me when I was little, I never made honor roll. Didn't grades weren't good. Cause little Jeffy always looked out the window. Little Jeffy couldn't stop talking. You know, little Jeffy couldn't stop, you know, moving. And my dad said, Jeff, this is a superpower. You have something the other kids don't have. You can take it out of kids. You can't put it in them. And I thought at five and six, seven, eight years old, you know what? That's, I felt sorry for the little kids that weren't hyper like little Jeffy because my dad told me it was a superpower. I believed him. A doctor didn't say, Jeff, you have attention deficit. It's a disorder. You're going to be a werewolf at midnight. Take this pill. Now, my son was given Adderall at 16 and he thought his attention deficit was a disorder and he thought he was a werewolf. And he was one of the many people that shouldn't have begun Adderall because first of all, he took too much of it. And then when he took less of it, he fell off and, and crashed and burned. And then he started drinking and doing drugs and, and, and then he was incarcerated and he was dead. So I'm not blaming the medical profession. I'm saying my life experience is what I just told you. So I can't think I'm an anomaly. I can't think that, that, that what happened to us is just unique to me. So I'm really interested. I haven't, I, I, who am I to make a claim 
that it's a choice or a disease. But I do see in my personal situation, very poor choices were made. It cost two people that I love their life, but the choice I made was a good one and I'm still here. So again, I'm, I'm, I'm really curious to on this tour, Scott, to talk to the, the experts, the people that have their reputations, their, their livelihood, their, their, their bank accounts on the line with statements they make and not to challenge them, but to educate me. Okay. If someone's really convinced it's a disease, then I'm open to um, teach me. What am I missing? Yeah. Um, well, you know what? I would, so I, I'm I would, really excited about the tour. I would know? absolutely challenge them and push them and, and, and shove them. Because here's the thing. I believe it, in our treatment center, we believe one size does not fit all. We just believe that one size mm-hmm. does not fit all when it comes to treatment. And there are people who I believe who abuse things who may not have an addiction issue. It can happen. And I, you know, look, harm mm-hmm. reduction now called, you know, more popularly medication assisted treatment, uh, really can be a great. Yeah. I want to ask you about that too. So, yeah. So, so we, we look at that and I'm the kind of guy, if somebody comes in and says, look, I'll give up alcohol, but I'm not giving up marijuana. I'd rather have them come to group and talk about that than exclude them because we're an absolute based mm-hmm. program. So, and, but on the other hand, if, right. if they had a primary diagnosis of depression, because we're, we're certified for alcohol and drug, we technically would have to have a primary diagnosis in order to bring them in because we're certified to get benefits. If they're a cash pay client or self pay mm-hmm. client, we don't care. But, but, but mm-hmm. I, I can only take so many scholarship clients a year because I've got to stay in business and I want to grow right. my business because I want to help more people. And we're finding that veterans can, you know, the, the depth and breadth of some of these issues, you can't even start treating, and I mean veterans in general, until you remove the anesthesia. So if somebody's even had a long-term prescription mm. of Adderall, and, you know, now I just got an, I got an alert yesterday that one of the biggest drugs found now in bus recently is Adderall cut or laced with fentanyl. Because Adderall, I, you know, I heard you that think too. about the distributors and manufacturers, I mean, they're doing everything they can to get this fentanyl in everybody's hands. What a great you know, what a great portal they Adderall are. because, you know, what, 25% of the kids in this country are on some form of medication. And most of us, I have ADHD. I mean, that's why I, my Zoom recovery meeting, you know, with all the different cubicles, when we started going on Zoom, I loved it because there's 40 people. I'm watching people make breakfast, make coffee, mow their lawn with their ear yeah. on it. And I love it because I can watch. I love attention it. deficit. It's awesome. Yeah. yeah. You and I should not spend much time in, you know, in your motor home because, you know, it would, we would, one of us, <laughs> one of us would be riding on the roof after about the second or third day. But, but, but medication is to assistant treatment yeah. is a great tool, <clears throat> you know, but still 95% relapse rate. There's a great movie. You can't get it anymore. Another producer bought it called The Business of Recovery. And they interviewed the CEO mm. of Betty Ford and the CEO of, um, Hazelton at the same time talking about recidivism and relapse rates. And it was interesting. Um, won't go into detail, but it, if you can find a copy, I think somebody bought it because they just didn't want it out there because it was very revealing. Mm-hmm. And it, it basically said this model, this thing that they're all getting the same outcome, you know, and the social model technically, which to that one doc's got the, you know, the connection connection piece works a lot. But if you're in the social model, but you're still taking something mood altering and it, changes the way you feel, think, and, and live, it's hard to get better. And then you can't really treat the underlying mm-hmm. issues while you're under anesthesia. That's the way I look at it. Mm-hmm. What do you think about, and I, I've 
kind of formed a, a, a opinion on this, but what do you think about in AA, they really promote, you know, this streak thing, you know, being on a streak and, and people going on social media and saying, I've been sober for 1,500 days or whatever. And I recently had a friend I follow on LinkedIn that, that fell off and she had been very adamant about not bragging, but you know, being out there forcefully that, Hey, I've been sober for 700 days or whatever. And she's in her mid twenties. I think I admire her. She's very active. She's um, a big mental health advocate, but she fell off the wagon. I don't know, a few months back. And man, when she came back on, she was just, I, I thought she was going to kill herself. She was so down on herself. She was so apologetic. She was so, and I got to thinking, it's like, okay, you know, maybe there's something with this problem of keeping these streaks and maybe, maybe we're looking at that the wrong way. So I personally don't keep a streak. I know what day I quit, but I, I don't, I just, I just, I see people really self-loathing and they, and they really torture themselves when they become human and fall off the wagon, which is perfectly part of recovery. It's those relapses are, are not encouraged, but they're, they build foundations. Every time you relapse, you get a little stronger. And but these people punish themselves so much public, especially the ones that are public about it. And they just like, feel like they let down their, their minions. And it's like, no, 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 like, screw that. You, you're not letting down anybody. And I think that's the illusion of being over vulnerable when people are out there in their face showing their, and I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm just, I don't know, maybe I'm trying to look, maybe I'm trying to look at every single way that this has been done. Like we said, you do the same thing over and over, you're going to get the same result. And, and the big, you know, that AA really hasn't adjusted too much. I've been to only a few meetings, so I'm not an expert in AA, but it seems to me they're really kind of entrenched in some of the old ways that this has been done. And I know one of the things is have people keep track of how many days they've been sober. Do you, do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, do do you think that's a viable way or do you think maybe there is some, some potential to look at this a little differently? Cause I know one thing I'm on a meditation app. And when I was on, was that when I was on the waking up app with Sam Harris, he used to have a thing on there where you, you kept score of your, your streaks. And finally, Sam, who's a th- huge thought leader, he took it off and he said, you know, I was finding people just manipulating it for public appearance. And they were coming on the app, clicking on that they meditated, then they would say they've been met. And I thought to myself, why wouldn't that same concept work with people who claim to be sober? And then that could be easily manipulated as well. Um, I just, I thought I'd throw it out there and see what your thoughts are on that. I got a buddy of mine that's, uh, for the, what do they call that bike? The Patreon, Patreon bike. Um, you know, where people ride. Yeah. Uh, Peloton. Peloton. Um, and he, you know, he, he, yep. he like rode like, you know, 400 consecutive days. And like you just said, and, and it's, it's a competitive group and he's riding with people internationally and he's a big, he's been riding for 30 years. So I think to answer your question, first of all, I think that the anonymity that, 12-step programs promote are really important. But on the other hand, I think people's success uh, shouldn't be kept a secret because it's inspirational. And I think it, it, there's a false positive mm-hmm. around it. And what's interesting, there, there are studies that have been done that, you know, you go to a meeting every week, hypothetically, and you raise your hand, you go, hi, I'm Scott, I'm a drug addict and alcoholic. The negative reinforcement of just saying that out loud I know. In a room, I know. <laughs> kind of, you know, allows the, the, the. I've always thought about that. I've always thought about that. It, it is fascinating because there's studies that have been done. You know, the, the outcomes. Because you're... can I stop you a yeah. second, real quick? 
Because in my book, in my book, you'll like this. I said, let's imagine there's a there's an Overeaters Anonymous, and 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 you and you you're you're going in there forty pounds overweight. So you stand up, you say, "Hi, I'm Jeff. I'm fat, and and I want to lose weight. Thank you, whatever." And then you lose weight, and now you're you've lost the forty pounds. You don't stand up and say, "Hi, I'm Jeff. I'm I'm fat." And, you know, that's why this whole thing about once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic, I'm challenging that narrative because use weight loss again. I mean, let's say you were able to, to, to conquer your weight loss and at least lose weight. The hard part is keeping it off. Just like quitting drinking is easy. The hard part is never drinking again, but we don't stand up in overeaters anonymous classes and say, Hey, I'm Jeff, I'm fat. You know, you may say I'm Jeff, I have an eating problem, but it's like, I I'm just trying to, I'm trying to think if what we were doing was working. I wouldn't be doing this. And if we were doing was working, we wouldn't be building more rehab facilities and we wouldn't be burying more people. And so maybe some of the simple ways we are looking at this issue, such as like you said, hi, I'm Scott. I'm an alcoholic and a drug addict. It's like negative, negative, negative. Maybe just maybe we need to change that. I don't know. Well, here's what I know about, the anonymous programs. I mean, my book, my first book, Tell Me No, I Dare You, in there I tell my story. And I self-admit, disclose publicly, you know, and I just wanted to. Anyway, I got in trouble uh, in San Diego because one of the traditions is you're not supposed to tell people that you're in recovery because it may encourage someone else to say it out loud and then they might lose their job. So I got pissed. And then all of a sudden, I got hmm. a phone call from some people in Sacramento. They're coming to San Diego and they want to know if they can meet with me about me breaking the traditions. I go, I'm not on contract with Alcoholics Anonymous, for God's <laughs> sakes. Are you serious? <laughs> well, we really would like to spend some time with you. Right. So I, I t- took coffee and we're talking. And I go, what, What's it going to take for you guys to go away? How about I sign a book and give you one free? Okay. <laughs> they were doing their due diligence. The six months later, a buddy of mine who was really committed to the recovery program it. says to me, Scott, we just got a letter from New York Alcoholics Anonymous Central that your your complaint, the complaint that they, they filed in California in San Diego that went to Sacramento, and I guess they got a copy of your book, is now on file in national office. And he goes, Come on. He goes, I'm, ser- I'm serious. I, he goes, I really want to thank you. We finally got on the map and a little meeting in Ocean Beach here in San Diego in the national office. And he goes, I personally appreciate it, but I know you'll probably get some flack over it. So my point is, uh, you, I think you said you're in your fifties, right? Okay. I'm 56. Okay. Well, that's in your 50s. Someone the other day said, I'm in my mid to high 60s. I'm like, yeah. I'm, <laughs> yeah, that would be. I'm 68. Where would that really, what, where would that put me if mid to high, you know? So I would. here's what I would suggest. And I don't, you know, I haven't taken time to give you any suggested. Don't worry about the 12-step programs. Because first of all, systemic change probably will take a long time for them. And the 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 concept of Alcoholics Anonymous, that is worldwide, if you think about it, the social model, the social model of what 12 mm-hmm. steps have created ultimately have the same success rate as a $300,000 a month rehab, actually even better, even better, because they maintain mm-hmm. that 5%. I would agree. Because yeah. and, and anyone can go. Everyone is welcome. And there's a meeting everywhere. Which, yeah. and, and you'd think, you'd think with the... Um, you know, COVID issue in the pandemic, there'd be more people going to more meetings. Now I go to four meetings a week and I'm 37 years sober, but I go because I, it's so, you go to four a week. Yeah. Wow. Well, because (laughs) 
I like watching people make their breakfast and have coffee. And I'm sitting there listening to these stories. And it's like, you know, this it's good for me. Well, and you like inspiring people too. Yeah, you know, you like I'm giving a, back. Well, I, and that's know, one of the reasons why you My wife thinks I'm a stalker. Because some mornings I just, you know, I don't show my face. They see my name. <laughs> they know it's me. And I've been going to this one meeting for 33 years. So, but I do it because there's always something in the room that resonates with me. There's always a story or someone who's just experienced a relapse or someone who's done really well. So I get inspired from the person who may have only 20 hours of sobriety to the person who, you know, this guy is funny. He, he, he's, I won't give you his name, but he's been um, on the internet with somebody in the Philippines, you know, one of those, you know, meet someone overseas. And he, he's been talking mm-hmm. about for months going to meet her, never met her, seen her, you know, talk. And then he got COVID. So his, trip got delayed and then he finally went over and this morning he's up on the screen and his room's a friggin mess and you know it looks like he just came back mm-hmm. and just flailed everything on the shelves he was going to wash everything today and he goes well i just spent 10 days and i came back you know with an intestinal infection so i called him out you know I, you're not supposed to cross talk but i shared and i go yo i won't give you his name i said how is it you went for 10 days to meet someone you fell in love with online and all you want to share is you came back with an intestinal infection, for God's sake. <laughs> Guy's my age, you know, maybe a couple of years younger. Yeah. Anyway, so, but that's kind of how the, the mindset goes. Cause when you get in the, and people say it all the time, you know, I go to these meetings, it's so depressing. And I said, well, you know what? Take the positive pieces. And that's to your point earlier that, yeah. you know, you have a choice. You can, you can say to yourself, oh my God. And I'm a catastrophic thinker. I mean, if you walked into my office, okay, and you said, <laughs> where the hell is, and you didn't put a name there, I would assume you're talking to me. So I have to be careful <laughs> because I'm sensitive to it. And I grew up in a family business and there were hundreds of employees at one time. And, you know, I was under the influence almost every day. And, you know, I literally yeah. tried to take my own life. So my level of understanding, I'll take anything that works. I mean, who's that guy? You probably know him that he did the, the little rat town, you know, where he tested rats. And he said, you know, it's, it's, it's yeah. who you hang out with, you know, it's who you're, your tribe is. You're exactly right. I've heard that story presented because the criticism was, you know, if you give rats the cocaine, they're going to get stoned or whatever, or get high. And the reality was once you change the environment and, and you left the cocaine there, the rats figured out that they, they didn't want to do that. But if you only put cocaine in there, nothing else, yeah. then sure they're going to get high. I just don't. Trust so you're right. I mean, I think there's a lot to do with. I don't trust the rats. I mean, I, changing I environment. I don't trust the rats because they, <laughs> they, they document differently than we do. So it's, it's kind of like, you know, I have a higher power and I have a God that I'm comfortable with. And I have both because I'm Jewish and I went into this program. Mm-hmm. It was Christian based. I had a huge problem with it. I mean, my rabbi came to visit sure. me in treatment and he said, you know, Scott, Jewish people don't have alcohol problems. I go, rabbi, rabbi, I got a wristband. There's alarms on every door. There's security <laughs> in the parking lot. I have a problem. He goes, well, let me tell you something. God is within you. You know, he's with all of us. I said, well, I'll tell you, if God's within me, last week when I was in New York with five nights of blackouts, he was a party animal because we got twisted all yeah. week long and picked up by the police. Yeah. So, I, I you know, I, I went through a lot of different barriers of that. I learned to pray, okay, as a Jew, which was mm-hmm. unheard of. You don't do that, you know. My sponsor said, put your cigarettes underneath your bed. When you wake up in the morning and you find yourself on your knees reaching for your cigarettes, just thank God for getting you through another day. That's how I learned to pray. So Hmm. it's little things that Hmm. make big differences. But, you know, today 
even I, there's nothing I didn't put in my body except heroin because I'm afraid of needles. And it's not necessarily what I was doing during the days. You know, the, it's the mix of stuff that's going on now. Then you factor in the prescription medication. I mean, this Whitney Houston classic case, prescription medication, street cocaine. I watched that. I watched the documentary the other day. Alcohol. Yeah. I mean, it's that combination. And then you, yeah. you factor in the underlying untreated trauma or behavioral health issues. People are a lot more sensitive. And that's why we're seeing the overdose rate go the way it's going right now is uh, forgetting fentanyl, which is poison, but I mean, in general. And, you know, the suicide yeah. rate with teens is up way, way too high. And, you know, I yep. think I think what you're about to bark on, to your point, you, you're going to get some interesting information, but I also think you'll probably come back right. equally frustrated. And um, let's let, let's do everything we well, can I think, to keep a conversation going. I want to anyway. Yeah, I'll I'll jump on that a minute. And I I, I told you because you asked about you know we were talking about how long the show is, and I said, well, it's about an hour, but. Uh, sometimes it feels longer. Sometimes it feels shorter. I, I feel like you and I've been talking for like 10 minutes and I looked up and it's been an hour. So we're having a really good conversation. So first of all, I'd love to be on your show. I'd love to get you back uh, on this show and have an update. But I struggle with this tour in trying to explain to people what I'm trying to do because everybody thinks I'm out there on a lecture tour, a, a book signing tour. I'm on a I'm on a, you know, awareness. This awareness is what I know campaign. tour and building awareness. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the reality is I don't know crap. And again, I'm a, I'm five years into this. I've lost two people I care about. I'm on an exploration mission and we even, we went so far to name our RV, the endurance Two, in honor of Ernest Shackleton, who went to Antarctica and, one of the greatest, you know, greatest endurance and hum, human stories of, of perseverance, uh, in, in human history, when going back and saving his men, you know, after, after having to leave, it's a tremendous story. We named our RV, the endurance Two in honor of the ship that sank that they just found almost a hundred years to the day. Um, the endurance was Ernest Shackleton ship. So, you know, we are, I I'm really trying to get people to understand I'm exploring alternative ways to shake up this mental health tree. I'm not out lecturing people. I have some, certainly I have my presentation 30 minutes. I have some input in my opinions and my, my life story, but who am I at 56 that, you know, had a gambling addiction, had an alcohol problem, you know, buried two people who, who am I to claim that I, I know the right answers to things, you know? Um, but I certainly will come back with a ton of information so our objective is to build this organization, this machine, I call it. And after the tour, circle back with everybody that's interested in our story and connect people. Like Johan Hari said, that's how to solve this problem. Connect people. Well, that's what we want to do with Living Undeterred. We want to turn this into a machine where we're ultimately connecting people. And, and that's, that's my evil ulterior motive with the tour is that I want to, I want to build something that can change lives, not raise awareness. Um, I think there's enough people do a better job than I'll ever do on that, but to try to change lives. And we do that by getting people to make better choices and, uh, or become, you know, understanding why they make the choices that they make. Yeah. Um, so listen, uh, what words of wisdom would you want to add at the end of the show here to my followers that you could put a bow tie on this topic, the opioid epidemic, the mental health crisis, 
what are some things you've learned in your many, many years of, of, of being, you know, many more years than I have uh, experience wise? Uh, what can you give to my listeners to give them hope and inspiration? Yeah. Well, before I answer that one, after listening to you articulate your mission for your travel, I would highly recommend if you can, if you can get thought circles going, my words, whatever your voice is for that with younger people and ask them that question. What you just said, I'm not here to build awareness because I think we all have it. What I want to know from you is how do we, and I don't want to say this, I'm going to say it, but how do we fix it, whatever it is and find out from them what Mm -hmm. they think that it is. I mean, and to your point, I think oh, I like I love that. I think I love if that. you make if you make the thousands of new friends who become kindred spirits, in my opinion, if you just do that, you'll have a network if you have capacity to build on to to grow the information um, cycle in a way that you, you probably because you're right, you're going to be perceived as this, and you know, and the and the media is going to ask you certain right. questions a certain way because that's what they do. They already have. And you just have to push They back already have. And, you know, just, you know what, do what, uh, do what Kevin McCarthy does. You know, I, I hear your question, but, you know, I think, or I believe, or I think you're handing it off. You know, yeah. So get, get your agenda out there. You know? My standard answer right now, I've been talking to my staff about this. I said, you know, when the media comes in and they're going to ask you those trap questions, you know, what's changing the narrative? You know, why, why you, what, what's different about you? My standard answer is if what we were doing was working, we wouldn't be doing the tour. Right. And you know and what? Leave it at that. I, I, because I dare you. that is, that, that really encompasses everything. Yeah. And I dare you, you know, third party credibility. Point to me. Say, you know what? Call my new friend, Scott H. Silverman. Oh, I'm going to drag, I'm going to drag you. I'm going to drag you into this project oh, yeah. at some capacity. Well, you know, we're, so, we, I want to, I don't um, want to do that. I just, I don't, I don't want to do the other part. I mean, maybe cause I gotta, I've got to focus on my, my organization right now, but I, there's, I know there's, and look, I'm, yeah. I'm available anytime. You, you people have my, your people, your people have my phone number. I give it out all the time, by the way, 619-993-2738, 619-993-2738. Call or text me anytime. Okay. Back to your question. I believe there's always hope and always help. Three of the toughest words in the English language is I need help. I would like to encourage you to use those three words whenever you can. And if no one's told you they love you today, hmm. I love you. I love you too, brother. Well, that was really more. For and you, I'm honored to have you on the show. That was more for your guests. You and I are going to do. No, that was, that was for me. I took, I took that personally. Look at the camera. Cause I, I want, yeah, it's obviously it's going through. You're the vessel. So look, anytime you need me, uh, you call me. Um, I, I, I'm one of those people when my phone rings and I don't recognize the number, I get excited. I really get excited because to me, yeah. that's the hope and help. And that may be a family member. I mean, just yesterday, this lady right. calls me at 730 in the morning and says, hey, I really need your help. Blah, blah, blah. I call back at nine. Her son answers the phone. She goes, he goes, yeah, my mom called. We really need your help. Uh, but I can't remember where I put my van last night. So we're, we're going to look for it. Can I call you after we find Oh, geez. I go, yeah, real quick. How old are you? He goes, 52. His mom says, my son needs 52. She's been living with this for 35 years. There's always hope and help, brother. Okay. Well, there's always hope because that was the age I quit. 52 is the age I quit. So it's never too late. Anyone watching this, it's never too late. Listen, I'm going to let you run. Thanks so much. And I'm going to tap you. 
your 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 resources, your wealth of knowledge uh, I dare, on the tour. I dare you. And, I dare uh, it's you been to an, do that. I dare you. I, I, I will. You're, you're on my list of contacts uh, that I highly respect. So yeah. thanks again, Scott, for being on the Living on the Turd podcast. And, um, I'm very happy our paths crossed. This was awesome. You made my day. 